Hello and welcome to the CMG Podcast. I'm Tony Cantwell, and in each episode, we aim to bring you thought-provoking insights in business and professional education. In this episode, we take a look at the world of finance, and in particular, we look at it from the perspective of non-finance managers. There is an old song that has the lyrics, Money makes the world go around, the world go around, the world go around. and so forth. I don't know the rest of it. But anyway, it's as plain as the nose in your face that finance is the central axis on which the world really does turn. It's that important. And equally, the need to understand finance, how it impacts business, business strategy, and major decisions is vital. It's probably fair to say that higher up the corporate or management ladder you go, the greater the need to understand finance. And if you never studied it before, it will become a thing if you don't. It's that important. If you don't understand finance, it may well hamper your career growth up that ladder. To help our clients who want to get a better understanding of finance, we launched a CMG training course, particularly for those that didn't grow up around finance or perhaps never studied it, but who now see themselves needing a better understanding of the subject as the career develops. It's simply called Finance for Non-Finance Managers, and I'm delighted to welcome our course tutor, Peter Plant, to the studio today to chat with me about the course, its background, and maybe share a little about his journey to becoming a specialist in this area. Before we get started, let me give you a little about Peter's credentials and his experience. Peter has had an extensive number of senior management roles over the years, including working with the Fusco Group, National Medicare, which is the U.S. multinational, and finance director of the Dublin Business School. Peter has also trained blue chip clients, including EI, Aircom, Bordnemona, and many more. Peter's been delivering training courses around the world for major clients and is currently involved with First Intuition, where he delivers professional accountancy training programs. I understand Peter also gets up and delivers training somewhere around 2 a.m. Irish time to students in China. More of that later. Peter, thank you so much for dropping in today to have a chat about finance for non-finance managers. First off, tell me about the China lecturing and training issue. I mean, do you really get up in the middle of the night? Uh, well, a combination, actually. Sometimes I'm physically in China. So that normally means I'm in a completely different time zone of the world. And it takes a little bit of getting used to. But on other occasions, I might be delivering the lecture from my office, which basically means a converted room in the house where I'm lecturing to people at two or three o'clock in the morning, trying not to make too much noise to waking the rest of the oh, house wow. up. wow. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you... Is there like would there be many in the class or that you're quite it varies quite a lot. Okay. Usually it would be between probably forty and in some cases up to a hundred people in the group. Go on. Because most of them will be very they're very keen to learn about Western accounting standards and how Western companies operate. And usually I'm almost like uh, the local celebrity visiting China because there wouldn't be very many tutors who would take the trouble of going to China That's fantastic. to see the students in person. That's fantastic. That's uh, It's great from their side of things. I'm not necessarily surprised because they always get the impression with Chinese there's a, a almost an insatiable appetite to learn. Absolutely. You know. But uh, how did you get into that whole process uh, of, of training and teaching in China? Well, essentially how it started was the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants in London. They, at one particular point, this is about 20 years ago, decided to embark on expanding their qualification through China. And they selected a number of tutors from the British Isles to go to deliver some courses in China. And I happened to be one of the lucky ones 
who right. ended up being selected. And that's how it actually started, because once I got into the operation over there and once the Chinese understand your skills, experience and pedigree, they're usually very welcoming to ask you back again. And that's ultimately how it transpired. I became known in China and I understand I'm on various different recording devices throughout China when people can actually see presentations I've delivered. Wow, that's fantastic. How do you find the whole virtual training? Uh, it's it's challenging in some respects. If you already know the group and you've met them at some particular point before the course commences, it's much easier because you can establish some rapport with them. But and if you've had a, some relationship or you've absolutely. engaged with them in some way prior yes. to... Yeah. Because in actual fact, if it's a completely different group that you've never met before, it takes a while to establish the rapport and for them to get used to being able to ask questions or make points during the presentation. And so is it kind of work as a kind of a semester? Does, is it um, a, a specific period or is it like the school periods or whatever, the college periods, or is it beyond that? Is it throughout the year? You, it's actually throughout, throughout the year. And... Um, I find that the Chinese students are, as you said earlier on, they're very keen to learn yeah. and they're actually very good mathematically and logically speaking. The find the aspect of programming or training that they find challenging is understanding the nuances of language or the nuances and differences of different strategies and so on. Right, That's where they're most challenged because in the universities where I teach, normally you're talking about maybe the top two or three percent of the students, the best students in the best universities who really want to learn about Western yeah. accounting standards. And many of them will go to study in the US or they'll go to study in uh, the UK or in many other countries as well. Australia, of course, being one of the Absolutely. preferred yeah. destinations. Yeah. yeah, I imagine they keep you on your toes. They certainly do. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because the expectation is that you have the answers or you have you can give them the guidance. And do you ever get kind of not caught up, but do they do you find that you have to do a huge amount of preparation for this in advance and the, the time involved in something like that? Yes, in some of the programs there's quite a lot of preparation involved because in one particular course I deliver it's tested by case study and essentially that really means that you need to really understand a business in depth and have the relevant questions and the people who attend that course yes. are usually middle and senior managers who have been working for 10 or 15 years and they would have quite incisive questions yes. for sure yeah well that's fantastic well it says something about how you're valued and rated by them and so forth but looking at moving on to this course um, you start off with the description of the course that we do which is finance for non-finance managers cash is king short-term cash flow management and long-term funding mm -hmm. um, why did you pick that as the heading for the course uh, well essentially when most people are learning about business they always learn that profit maximization is the central theme. But in a coronavirus pandemic or in any other situation where you have an emergency like this, people realize actually that it's not all about profit, it's about survival. And survival all depends on your ability to manage your cash flows. Absolutely. And ultimately that's essential. And I think many organizations are now realizing that the ability to survive is much more important, especially in the next two or three years than profitability. Absolutely. And I think um, there may have been a lot of old habits maybe floating around in companies in terms of how they approach things. Now, the whole thing of conserving cash and 
spacing it, planning it, looking ahead, forecasting and so forth, vital now. Absolutely, radically changed. Yes, yes. If you look at, um, you start off with the fundamentals on the course, such as management accounts, then financial accounts, and you talk about the difference. What is the key differences between those? Ultimately, the financial accountant is the person that deals with most of the cash transactions and preparing the financial statements to report to shareholders. Mm. Whereas the management accountant, on the other hand, is actually providing advice for managers to make decisions now which will affect the business in the future. So to a large extent, a financial accountant will deal with historic transactions or current transactions recording the various different monies received and paid, whereas the management accountant is the person advising you about how to price your products for next year, advising managers on how to make decisions that might affect the business for the next five or ten years. So ultimately, it's all in the name. The financial accountant really deals with the financial issues, yes, uh, cash flows and so on, whereas the management accountant is the person who assists management to make the best decisions for the company. And that's more day-to-day, week-to-week, looking at it from that perspective. Absolutely. But, but I imagine it's a bit like the, the old saying in computers, rubbish in, rubbish out. Um, there has to be a process, and you tend to break down in the course that process of looking at. You do a template, I believe, um, where you look at... Uh, set of management accounts perhaps and you explore some of the aspects of that absolutely yes yeah one of my previous in one of my previous roles I spent a number of years as the management accountant in a large US multinational company and to a large extent the role of the management accountant was nearly the most important role of the business because that affected the key decisions so you need good quality information to make good decisions the financial accountant then would roll in later on and just record what had happened so often I've heard people describing the difference between you know, the management accountant and the financial accountant in a car with the managing director driving the car, the financial accountant looking out the back window telling people what had already happened, with the management accountant actually looking out the front window helping to read the map and plan out the journey for the company in the future. That's a fantastic image. <laughs> because in, in a sense, when you're looking at managing a business and cash flow and where it's going and also the business circumstance, the environment you're operating, like particularly where you mentioned about COVID-19 and so forth in terms of operating in this process. Is there a different tactic that you take with the management accounts when you look at, say, something that's unusual like this? Is it conservation of cash? Uh, Yes. Well, I suppose there are two aspects of it. One, on this particular course, we'd be looking at various different suggestions on how the company could attract more cash in Mm. during this particular period or this kind of challenge that companies can face. And also then there's the other aspect of conserving cash, but doing so in such a way that you don't, uh, I suppose, damage long-term relationships that you've built with many of your stakeholders. Yes. And that's very, very important. So there are two real aspects to it. One is some suggestions to say, how can we get more cash in? And also, how can we continue to operate in business while continuing with the relationships that many companies would have spent 10, 15, 20 years building relationships yes. with various different customers and yeah. suppliers and so on. I, I think when you look at it in terms of where it's at, there's probably, for instance, with the COVID situation in particular, um, there's going inevitably going to be casualties and so forth. Um, and a lot of it is out of the control of companies as such. But really, there are perhaps 
opportunities within the company to maybe reinvent it, re have a look again at its financial position and maybe take throw away the old plan and try and invent yes. a new cash flow forecast, a new uh, financial plan going forward. Yes, the best entrepreneurs will, you know, I suppose sit down and plan with our management team yes. some alternative strategies or a reconfiguration of the business, which is often required. And sometimes that's quite difficult to do because if you've been running a business for 10 or 15 years following a particular formula, exactly, it's difficult to admit exactly this is no longer going to work. And you need to, it's a great word everybody uses these days, pivot. Um, but that applies also to your financials. Absolutely. You know, yes. look at that. Which leads me into this issue, which we're probably, unfortunately, going to see uh, a bit more in companies' accounts, going concerns. And um, it is a standard thing now that goes into most sets of financial accounts. But um, for people who wouldn't understand, particularly when they see something like that, tell us a little bit about that, because I know you highlight some yes. of these in the course. Yes, in relation to going concerns, it's quite a standard comment mm. in a set of financial statements. And most people have become a little bit complacent and just say, oh, yes, that's normal and continue to read on without paying very much attention to it. But it's now going to become much more of a challenge for the external auditors yes. to be able to sign off on a set of financial statements that actually has those reassurances. Now, ultimately, the directors are responsible for giving that assurance and they are supposed to have done a reasonable amount of investigation to verify that the company is actually a going concern. Yeah. And I know one company that we use in our presentations is Ryanair. And in previous years, we'd be looking at the going concern aspect of it, and people would say, yes, of course, that's no problem. But a major challenge now for many industries is whether or not they can actually maintain the going concern status. Mm. And Ryanair is one of the companies that I would often point out. They have quite a strong balance sheet in this particular regard, because they have a very good financial management pedigree in that particular organization. Well-funded. Well-funded, exactly, and have a very strong balance sheet, one of the strongest balance sheets, actually, probably in And they the did, sector. in fact, while they hedge and all the rest of it that goes with that particular sector, um, they always had a strong cash balance. Yes. Which yes. is the cushion. That actually has been... I suppose, one of the key distinguishing features of that particular organization. Exactly. And it now has come to pass that it was a very prudent way to manage the business. Which leads me nicely because the, my next question to you was the prudence concept. Can you explain, for, again, for people who are not necessarily in the financial world but need to mm. maybe consider these aspects, the prudence concept, what does that mean? I often use the example of the prudence concept being like doing your leaving cert and coming home to your parents and explaining to mum and dad how you've gotten on in the examination. So the prudent concept, of course, would be if you in your mind believe that you've aced the examinations and got seven or eight A's, you always want to be a little bit conservative and lower expectations. Right. So you lower your expectations slightly so that if you do come home later with the, with the actual results and they're much better than the parents had expected, Everything well, looks rosier. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas if you promise you're going to come home with seven A's and you come home with six A's and one B, that's a little bit of a disappointment. So it's almost like under promise and over deliver. Over, yeah. And so in, in the, say, the corporate world or in the business concept, the whole idea of prudence, the prudence concept, I imagine, would be to shoot for the stars, but plan for 
little less, plan for, you know, drop it down a bit and just say worst case scenario, perhaps on a cash flow forecast or a management set of accounts, but maybe separate that. Is that your cushion? And then maybe shoot up there for bigger sales or whatever. Yes, yes. I suppose in business, the idea really would be if you've got bad news Hmm. to report it and allow for it and explain it as early as you know that the news is going to be bad. When in actual fact, if you have an expectation that maybe there might be some positive directional moves in the industry in which you're operating, you might be a little bit cautious about over-promising and consequently, it is really, I suppose, the prudence concept would be to let people know there are problems as early as possible. Yes. So they can make contingency plans or and take allow remedial action and allow for them. Exactly. Yeah. When in actual fact, if you think then there's something positive coming down the line, it's better to wait until it crystallizes a little bit more. So mm. rather than seeing an oasis in the distance and promising everybody is rosy in the garden, you wait until you're a little bit closer so you can... Yeah. Really, the reality. Of the it. reality begins to absolutely. Uh, I'm just looking, just jumping around a little bit. But for people who don't have an understanding of finance and who just didn't grow up around that, or maybe, as you mentioned earlier, off off air, um, maybe you're an engineer or you were a particular you know, profession, and finance wasn't your thing, but growing a business or developing in that business, it becomes a key asset to your wheelhouse, so to speak, doesn't it? It certainly does, yes. The number of people that I come across in this course that started out wanting to be either either a lawyer or an engineer or an architect and had no inclination or no love of, of figures at all, yeah. often will find themselves in the mid-career or in the later parts of their career being promoted to senior management positions and having then to either prepare budgets or to analyze financial statements, or maybe in some instances they might be lucky enough to be on the board of directors and sitting down reviewing a set of financial statements. It's very, very important to be able to understand what you're actually looking at because ultimately the financial statements are telling you how the business is performing and the management accounts are likely to tell you how it's likely to perform in the future. And consequently, that's really, really important because as you mentioned previously, the world does really rotate on a financial axis. Yes. And that's very, very much the case for every single business as well. And also, I think in a set of accounts, you can also, if you understand them properly, you can start to identify maybe issues materializing, looking at the finances before perhaps it becomes a big issue. So to have that radar to understand in a set of accounts or if there's an acquisition or something along those lines, particularly as careers develop, those things become vital, that you need to have that insight into how finance operates and works, wouldn't you? Absolutely, yes. Because if you're really going to add value as a senior manager, you have to be able to ask the right questions. And various different industries will have specific, I suppose, accounting challenges or maybe revenue recognition challenges or accounts, uh, various different transactions as to how they're portrayed in accounts. And What you need to be able to do as a senior manager in an organization is ask the right questions and be able to identify if there's something that you're not quite sure about. And often simply stating, I don't understand, and asking somebody to explain a particular concept is actually a very important question. Often, you know, often a way of learning something is to say, I don't know. What does that mean? What does that mean? Because you're going to make decisions for the future of the business or the organization, which inevitably come back to finance. And if you have no understanding of it, it's kind of 
potentially disastrous then, isn't there? You, you, you really shouldn't be doing that if, you're, if you don't have a knowledge of it. Absolutely, yes. And it's in that context. I think, what kind of um, typical questions do you get as feedback from the courses? Because we were just discussing there, you've been doing this for a number of years now. It's a hugely popular course. Yes. Um, what are the typical questions you get from some of the delegates or some of the attendees? Often you'd get questions about, I suppose, involvement in preparing budgets. So that's a typical question mm-hmm. that would come back um, because in many organisations, regardless of whether it's in the public sector or private sector, budgets have to be prepared yeah. because you need to plan for the next, at least the next 12 months. And consequently, that's a regular topic that crops up. And also uh, something that crops up regularly on the that we cover on the course are the ratio analysis being able to understand a set of accounts through the use of ratio analysis. So in the course material, there is a reasonably comprehensive module explaining how to calculate the ratios, but more importantly, what they mean. Because, of course, anybody can do a calculation. The important thing really is to understand what does this calculation actually mean? Yeah, what's the information coming back from this? And yeah, absolutely. And what what, explain a little more on the, the ratio concept then what? Just to delve into that a little bit, yes. um, a, any examples? or Well, I I'd, I'd often look at ratios as a little bit like a collection of road signs. Okay. Often they're telling you different directions to arrive at a final destination. So I suppose the important thing is to really understand what are the important ratios for your particular business. And often we'd focus on that aspect. And a term that's regularly used in the financial world is EBITDA earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation. Mm. And accountants regularly go around. I've often heard people say the accountant in my office or the, the people who come in doing our management accounts are often using this term and I really don't know what it means. And that's often a problem is simply just understanding the accounting language. Yes. And EBITDA is a very regularly used uh, accounting concept in both public and in private companies. And fundamentally, what it's really doing is it's giving a rough idea of whether the company is net cash generative or not. Yes. And of course, consequently, EBITDA would need to be positive. Yes. And ideally growing, not declining. So it's one of those ratios that's regularly used in management meetings. And if you're sitting at a board of directors meeting and this term is being bandied around, it's often really useful to be able to understand it in a, in a basic concept. Because that's one of the key things on this course is to try to make the complex simple to try yes. to make sure that you actually understand and you can ask the right questions when you're in some of these meetings. And not to be afraid to. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, because some people on the course, we've had people on the programme, maybe, for example, in the, from the credit unions, from public sector health authorities, from private sector legal practices, from small and medium building companies. Yeah. And they often have the same concepts, c- causing them problems, I suppose, in their yeah. day-to-day yeah. work. You see, the thing about it is with things like that, um, like you said there, the spectrum is quite wide in terms of people who need to understand a bit, but it does almost sound like it's a foreign language and they're not quite sure. And even when you say to people earnings before interest, um, it sometimes needs a little further explanation. We won't even get into amortization, um, Mm. but, but the understanding even what that would be like it does sometimes come across, but it's not when you actually open the door on that. It's not that foreign language. It's not that difficult because they can relate it then to their business. And I'm sure you get a lot of questions because they're coming at it from their particular angle. You have to be somewhat 
flexible, I think, to understand that they're asking that from a legal background. So I yes. tune in. Is, do, you, do you get that? Yes, it's very useful to know where the person is coming from and what industry they're in, because obviously in responding to those kind of questions, you have to take the context into consideration exactly, yeah. and make it real for them. Yeah. Usually when I'm doing EBITDA, for example, in the group, I would normally use a very simple example of a person buying a taxi and running a taxi company and just having a quick look at a set of really simple financial statements and saying, well, here's the profit, but now let's figure out what the EBITDA is. Yes. And how can this person improve their EBITDA? Because as I was saying earlier on, it's not about doing the calculations today. Can I understand the calculation? Exactly. And can I use it then to help me make decisions on how to improve my business? Yes. And once we actually use that simple example in the class, everybody says, ah, oh, I get it now. Yes. There's and that light bulb moment. And and that's really what you strive for, isn't it? Because absolutely. You, you want people have to go off this course saying, I get that. Yes. I understand that now. I, or they may have most of it, but there's a little bit they'll always kind of struggle with. One of the issues, I suppose, I, I, I liked looking at the course content was something that's very often underappreciated, working capital. Oh, absolutely. That's the lifeblood of the business. Uh, yeah. You know, I'd often say that ultimately, at the end of the day, without cash, you can't do anything. Just even in your own in your own circumstance, just think day about it. If you have no money and you need to get home and you don't have your bus fare, you're either going to have to walk thumb a lift or, or get home some other way. <laughs> Sit down somewhere. <laughs> yes, because in business, it's just exactly the same in business. Without cash, you can't do anything. And ultimately, that's the lifeblood of a business. And that's what you really look at in a business is the working capital cycle. That's the most important thing to look at in short-term solvency in particular. Exactly. And looking at that in terms of working capital, um, it ties in, obviously, to um, your cash flow forecasts, it ties into your management accounts because they will alert you to a potential issue down the road on working capital if something continues or if it doesn't change or maybe it gets better, whatever. Would that be correct? It would indeed, yes, because management of working capital is fundamentally uh, important for managing cash flows. Yes. Because ultimately, you know, say for example, part of working capital would be the amount of inventory that a company is holding raw materials, work in progress, and finished goods. And that's one of the reasons why in the retail trade, you'll often find a summer sale or a winter sale where they're selling, ver trying to sell very quickly the excess inventory that's not going to uh, continue to be in demand for very long. Yeah. So what they're really doing is they're turning their inventory very quickly into, into cash, cash so they can buy the new styles for yes. the new season. Yes, And that's just a simple example in the in the retail sector. But it's the same in many businesses. It's basically you know, looking at how much inventory you're carrying of various different types and whether or not it's it's needed. To and how long you've been carrying it. And yes. know, in terms of it can sit on your books as a kind of an asset for, for a while, but it's constantly depreciating and things like that, depending on the assets and stuff. But just thinking at the retail side. So you're getting that cash in and it's it's freeing up the whole system. Yes, it's enabling. It's. I often use a silly example of the elves and the shoemaker. You know, a little bit like I, most people don't realize that they were learning about accounting when their parents were reading the elves and the shoemaker to them. But long story short, I think the the poor old shoemaker didn't only had enough money to buy one or leather for one pair of shoes. The elves made some shoes in the night. Next day, he sold the shoes and was able to buy leather for two pairs of shoes, and so on. It continued until his business prospered. So the whole idea, really, the elves and the shoemaker is really about working capital working management. Working capital management. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
That's brilliant. Um, and I suppose, because I was going to ask you about techniques for improving cash flows in business, but because I think you get that as a, a feedback from, from your students. But that's part of it. That's that's the, what you're just talking about with the elves and the, the shoemakers. Yes. Yeah. I suppose there are two important aspects that we look at on the, on the course, and uh, we'd often share interesting ideas on the program. One would be in relation to inventory. Do I really need to have this inventory? Yeah either raw material work in progress or finished products and also trade receivables the amounts of money that your customers owe you and of course if you're lax on credit control that certainly will cause you difficulties in cash flow because ultimately when you look at trade receivables somebody else has your money in their bank account yes and you need some credit control processes to help them relieve their yes, bank account yes. of your and, cash. And transfer it back. We yes. used to say in the sales business years ago, Peter, that um, a sale's not a sale till it's paid for. And we grew up with that kind of process from a business point of view, many from, oh yes. God, I, I, unfortunately, about 40 years ago but uh, and onwards. But, um, but that's as true today. And a lot of people maybe aren't paying enough attention to that aspect, the credit management side of things. Yes, yeah, it's very, very important. And often there can be, in some businesses, there can be a little bit of tension, shall we say, between marketing and, and finance, yeah. because the marketing person lo- loves to come in and say, we've just made some fantastic sales. And the accountant is probably scratching their heads and wondering, how are we going to pay for the raw materials and the employees and so on to get this order ready? Yes. Because while it might be a very large order, the customer might not be paying us for 60 or 90 days from the date of delivery. Yes. But we've got to pay our employees every week. So that's where a little bit of prudence comes in as well. You know, you've got to find balance. When you're growing a business, you have to try to make sure that the growth is not exponential because the finances are normally not able to handle. And the other, I suppose the other side of that, Peter, is the fact that money has never been so free, uh, freely available, not free, obviously, but freely mm-hmm. available in the sense of whether it's crowdfunding or whether it's just banks being a little bit more flexible or alternatives to banks and disruptors and so forth. But that has its own pitfalls and issues as well, doesn't it? In terms of borrowings and, you know, bringing, just thinking, okay, we're a bit tight, working capital's a bit tight. If the fundamentals are right, it's it's pretty okay. But if it's not, and again, that's understanding what the finance uh, documents are telling you. Yes, yes. And uh, that's where one part of the course comes, becomes very important, which is the cash flow forecasting. Yes. Because ultimately that will indicate if the company is having difficulties, when is it likely to have a situation where it needs to organise a bank overdraft? Because the worst situation you can face is where you are actually at the limit of your bank overdraft and you're in an emergency mode desperately looking for cash. The importance really of the management accountant and the cash flow forecasting is really to anticipate a problem long before it actually arrives on your doorstep so that you can take some actions now to... I suppose, identify alternative sources of finance or different strategies. For example, it might be maybe just deferring some capital expenditure that had been scheduled or uh, maybe being a little bit tighter on credit control. Various different strategies like that. It's amazing, actually, in business that if you improve credit management a little bit, the extra that that brings to the business and you keep a close eye on that. So many companies maybe fall down on that aspect of it because the sales are made, the invoices are gone, let's look at the statements or whatever. You do need to have that active 
credit management, don't you? Absolutely. Yes, it's absolutely. And the amount of stress that that can relieve on a business yes. is incredible because if, as you correctly say, if the credit control is reasonably well managed, it, the stress it relieves from the company, because otherwise the company will have to go to its bank and prepare all kinds of cash flow forecasts and yeah. business plans and so yeah. on. And normally, I suppose in the current situation as well, banks are a lot more reluctant yes. to give you a quick decision. Yeah, we're in the eye of the storm on that one. One of the issues I hear come up, and this will be an interesting one, i really like to see what you think on this, is there's an issue with regards to vouchers. Yes. And it comes up more and more, and people have said it to me over, how do they, how do they treat vouchers in the business context? So whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a hotel, whether it's a beauty salon or whatever, if you're issuing vouchers for people to buy, um, how do they treat them between the context of selling the voucher now and then maybe perhaps even when it's not redeemed within a certain time frame? How is that treated in a set of accounts? Okay, that's that's a, an interesting thing that crops up fairly regularly. Actually, just uh, something that I was thinking about when you were a- asking that question as well was also the ideal type of situation in business is where you can get your customers to pay some money in advance of actually making the sale. And vouchers is one particular example of that. Yeah. But I remember re- reading, I think it was only a couple of months ago in the Financial Times, about the Oyster card in the UK. And I have an Oyster card because it's very handy when you yeah, pop when into you, London yeah. and you're on the underground, you can just use your Oyster card and I'd normally leave some money on it. But I, I read in the Financial Times just there last September, October, uh, coming up to Christmas, that the Oyster card prepayments total approximately 400 million sterling, which basically means, you know, wow. I'm not the only one with an Oyster card in my pocket with some cash with some cash on paid it. in advance for travel I might or might not ever take. Wow. And I was just thinking, wow, that's just a really good example of the yeah. benefits of that organization. They have the cash. And your, your question is very, very pertinent and relevant. They have the cash in the bank, which is very, very important yes. for the operation of the business. But in terms of the profit and loss account, they're not really supposed to recognize that as revenue until exactly. the person has actually taken the journey and spent their Oyster card amount. Yes. So there are two different parts of the transaction. One is I pay the cash over. It's gone into the bank account of the company if I'm buying a voucher. So let's say, for example, I'm buying a meal voucher for somebody's birthday yeah. and I'm putting maybe 50 euro on the voucher. That money obviously leaves my bank account and goes into the company's bank account. So it's now in liquid cash format in the company. But in terms of recognizing it on the profit and loss account, mm. they can't recognize it as a sale until the person actually presents in the restaurant and uses that voucher for their meal. Only then are they supposed to recognize it as revenue. Or in the unless, if there's, unless there's a redeem by date. Yes. And I assume, I think the, the law now says, says something about six months is the new... Uh, max duration or something or has it gone further I'm not quite sure but whatever it is if it's 6 or 12 months so there's a probably an annual if let's say it's 12 months there's yes. an annual roll on then so that that would go on to the next year or do, does it carry a liability or does it just go in as sale basically if if the voucher reaches its use by date and it's no longer actually valid if that happens then the company would be permitted to recognise it as revenue in their accounts. 
But of course, some businesses use this as, a, as an opportunity to generate some goodwill because I remember reading recently, I think it was some restaurant in, in Ireland had recognised voucher that was way, 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 way beyond <laughs> its sell-by date. And of course, they got lots of pos- positive publicity about allowing the customer to still use it. But the point really, you're absolutely right. You know, unless the voucher is used, yes, you can't recognise it. So you don't recognise it. So you don't recognise it. It's actually in your bank account. And the way it's, a, it's recorded in the set of financial statements, it's sitting in my bank account, but from an accounting point of view, it's theoretically a liability. Liability, exactly. Yes. So it's got to sit there as well. Exactly. Until it's redeemed or expired or whatever on yes. that basis. And I would be the same as many other people. Um, that I've purchased vouchers in the past and haven't redeemed them. You know, for example, oh. I might be on Groupon or on... Yeah. Um, ttimes.ie and I book a tea time and it's lashing rain outside and so I'm not, not doing use it. that voucher <laughs> yes now in many instances if you don't use the voucher there will be a period of time when you can look for a refund yes but of course yeah very the, few people do and it's absolutely kind of, yeah yes. and as you say it becomes almost free cash to the company if it's not used and if it is used it's fine it's still you're getting the money you don't have to chase credit management issues you don't have all those other things so yes. there's a lot uh, plus going you you reference in the course and uh, we're coming towards uh, the close on this peter but aggressive working capital management yes what do you mean yeah aggressive working capital management as in as the term would suggest is somewhat somewhat dangerous for an organization to do and if I were to give you an example uh, of an aggressive financial strategy, it would be like buying a house on your credit card. Wow. You know, okay. that's actually taking a yes. significant yes. risk. Yes. Uh, because you could get into financial You're difficulties. You're all out. You're all out, exactly. All your chips are on the table. And if things yeah. don't go in your direction, you can find yourself in cash flow problems much faster than would otherwise be the case. Yes. So, for example, in a and it's actually happening to many companies. Uh, listed companies now in the real world where they would have had cash in their bank account from uh, profitable trading and they might have spent the money on maybe share repurchases, buying back shares from shareholders and emptying their bank account and consequently their working capital management would be very tight. They'd have very little cash in their Mm -hmm. bank and that's fine if the sun keeps shining. Yes. But as soon as the clouds begin to appear and there's nothing in your bank account, the, the aggressive strategy of spending your cash uh, as if there was no problems down the line. Yes. Can the, like it'll always be sunny and things will always be good and it's mm. never, ever the way. Is it? <laughs> never. Ever. Never. Um, you also offer the attendees to this course, Peter, a sample template for their monthly management accounts. Are you surprised sometimes by how so many companies just don't have a template, don't have a formula for their management accounts? Yes, absolutely. And uh, that particular template comes from years of experience of working in different companies and putting together some of these management accounting templates. Because as we were saying at the beginning of the session, the management accountant has a very important role to play in providing good quality information to the decision makers. And the management accounting template basically is like the newspaper of the company that should be produced either once a month or once a quarter. And the management, the board and senior management should really sit down and properly review the management accounts and often have maybe the management accountant give them some insight or interpretation of what the management accounts are actually saying to the company. And ultimately, the trick, I suppose, in many instances, the management accountant should say, here are the top three, four or five items. You might have a pack that has 50 pages in it, but 
Here's here one. are the top three messages that you guys need to focus on in this particular Yeah, period. if you have a situation where you've got the, you're fortunate to be working in a large organization like that, you probably have the benefit of the, the board or maybe your full-time financial accountant or whatever. Ireland is also a huge nation of entrepreneurs yes. and small businesses. And uh, they very often the, the founder is also the person at the cold face is also the person sitting at night doing the accounts and stuff like that. So when when they're trying to put these things together, I imagine that having a template, for instance, to do your management accounts on and gives them and you educate them on the basis of things that they maybe need to watch for in that template. And you, yes. you would highlight issues like that, wouldn't you? I would indeed, yes. And having that template in the course material is an important element because I do want people to leave the course yeah. with material that they can put into practice in their business, whatever it might be, in the months and years after they've actually attended the course. And the reason I put the template together in the material is it's actually quite difficult to even find online a template. Absolutely. With that kind of information. Absolutely. And I actually, I sometimes wonder if they fully appreciate the effort and blood, sweat and tears that you would have put into something like that because it does come from many years of experience looking at many different examples. And as you say, you need the context of whether, say, somebody is asking a question from a legal background or it's a healthcare background or the construction sector. So you're trying to give, not a universal, but you're trying to cover as much without overwhelming. Yes. And I think in that, I seen that template and I looked and I thought, it was like, wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is just, but not only that, because you, in the um, course, you specifically towards the end of it, hone in on the entrepreneurial side and business startups. Uh, and you introduce things like the 12 point business plan. You focus in on the business side of things there. Was that something that you seen from the feedback? Uh, yes, and and also it comes from uh, years of experience in various different contexts. That you, are, as you pointed out a moment ago, Ireland has many many entrepreneurs and small and medium businesses, which are the backbone of the economy, really. And these organisations will require financing at various different points as they grow yes. their business. And even on TV programmes like Dragon's Den, you'll almost be able to see straight away when the dragons ask some questions whether this is going to be a successful pitch or not for finance. And often the breaking point is if you don't know your finances, if the, the dragons ask about margins or sales or yeah. profits, and you'll know straight away if the person doesn't really understand the fundamentals of their business. Yes. And those that's so true. Yeah. It's so true because they look at it in the basis and they, they'll talk about the product and they'll talk about the market and then they will always, always come back to numbers. Yes. How do they stack up? What's your valuation? How did you get there? Which obviously the one thing that kind of pisses them off is overvaluing their companies because yes. they haven't even started or whatever. But it tends to highlight a lack of knowledge on the numbers. Absolutely. Yeah, because most entrepreneurs are absolutely fantastic with product ideas and innovation yes. and services that other people would never have thought about. But they do need a very significant amount of information from a financial perspective. How yes. does their product work? How much does it cost? What are the profit margins? How many items will I sell? What's my break-even point? All of these really important questions. These are questions that any prospective lender or equity investor is definitely going to ask. They want to know. They need to know. Yes. Um, but 
I was actually really, I was so impressed because you not just go into the 12-point business plan, you then also go into that vital executive summary. Yes. Let's give the entire picture in a page almost. Um, what are we talking about here? What's your financials? What's your, your, your plan? Um, so you've taken that right through, recognizing the entrepreneurial side of things, right through the 12 points, then going into the executive summary. And do you spend time highlighting then what should be on that executive summary for entrepreneurs? Yes, we certainly do, because ultimately, I, I can't remember which um, Irish writer made a, a comment along the following lines that uh, in, in writing a letter, more or less saying that they didn't have the time to write a, write a short letter, so they wrote a long one instead. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what the, exec, the executive summary, <laughs> you know, it's really trying to bring that point home to say, the most challenging page in that particular document to write will be the summary page. Absolutely. Because you've got about two or three minutes to really convey in a, in a confident message that you're not only do you have a viable product or service to sell, but you also understand the fundamentals of how the business is going to work from a financial perspective. Exactly. And if you exactly. can communicate that in a couple of pages, you're doing really you're well. You're doing well. Uh, and in fact, in fairness, again, you not just you don't just do that. You actually take them right through to having an exit strategy. Yes. Uh, so the whole journey is helped by that information as well, because yes. you're, you're asking them to have a very clear view of the out. Absolutely, because that's, you know, if you're asking an equity investor to get in to business with you, that's a question they will have in their mind right at the very beginning. If I get into this investment, how do I get out? And it should be something also that entrepreneurs think about themselves, because I, I know many people when they're enthusiastic in business and set out with an entrepreneurial idea, they never think of the day when they're going to retire and how they're going to pass the business on yes. and realize the value of their idea or yeah. their invention, as the case might be. So it's always an important question Absolutely. to think about. I have to say, I, I believe it's a fascinating course. It's packed with insights. And what's amazing about this course is that whether you're a budding entrepreneur, an existing entrepreneur, or somebody in a corporate world, or somebody who's just working in management and is moving up the ladder, you have so many things in this course that, yes. you can, that you'd be able to relate too, but you've somehow managed to knit all of that together seamlessly, uh, which accounts for, I think, are we, is it year seven, did we say? That yes. We're, doing, we're yes. still doing this so many times a year all, after all this time? Yes, it's worked very well. Uh, the challenge, actually, that I found is trying to put so many or so much diversity into one particular day. So it's amazing how much you can pick up yes. in a structured format. And actually... Uh, I often find that the attendees on this particular course enrich it as well because it's the questions, the insight, the sharing of ideas from different industries and different levels of experience that further enrich the course. Yeah, and yeah. I actually find that that's, from a personal point of view, it's actually very satisfying as well to find people engaging so much and being prepared to sh share so much of their experience as well because what? collective learning is ultimately one of the objectives of the program as well. You know, I'm not there, I'm not here necessarily just to deliver a message. We're here to collectively learn. And yes. Well, I think the attendees always bring something to the party. 
Um, but what would be apparent to them and the reason obviously it's been so successful would be your passion in delivering it as well and it's a great mix but uh, Peter thanks so much for dropping it I could sit and chat to you for hours on this <laughs> I really could but we have to kind of close it on here but details for the next training course finance for non-finance managers is available in the links below Peter thanks so much thank you very much it's been a pleasure